Good morning. Right, we're going to be a little bit theological this morning. I hope you can handle it. Um, I want to talk about our eternal state. John's been sharing about people that have had experiences of after-death experiences or close-to-death experiences where they've gone to heaven or had an experience whereby they've been in a a tunnel of light and they've, ex they've experienced Jesus or a figure dressed in light speaking to them and assuring them. And we've, had, we've heard some incredible stories and, and um, obviously seen videos of people's testimony. And I thought, we need to know, don't we? where we're going. We need to have that assurance of salvation and have our, our relationship with Christ. We've just been moving house, which is horrible. <laughs> My wife says that's horrible. It's the worst experience. You start, especially when you're downsizing about 40, 40 square meters and we're we're trying to say, well, do we want this? Do we? No, that can go off to the Salvation Army. I think I did about three or four trips to the, the Salvation Army with stuff. And um, you're getting rid of this and you're getting rid of that. And, 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 but as you go through the process, and as we started to unpack in the new house, I came across something that I'd completely forgotten that we had. It had been tucked away in a blind spot in our kitchen in Northwood and uh, one of those blind spots, I don't know, sometimes you get in cupboards where it goes up the back and it never sees the light of day and it hadn't seen the light of day for three years as we've been in this house for three years and out it came as we were unpacked and um, as someone was helping me and I was putting stuff away in the kitchen and it was, it was something that was called a lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine. <laughs> there it is. Absolutely, and I thought, well, here it is. My wife had purchased it online, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic about stuff purchased online, I must admit, sometimes. What did you get that for? Well, but, you know, I thought, well, here it is, it's, it's here, let's, let's try it. So I stuck a couple of stakes in it and turned the dial and, hey presto, five minutes later, two beautiful steaks. I thought, this is great. And we've been cooking on it for a fortnight now. <laughs> it's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. There it was, all the time. This brilliant, lean fat, lean mean fat, reducing, don't forget the reducing, grilling machine, George Foreman was the inventor apparently. So this was, this was a wonderful discovery that had been there, we had possessed it, we had owned it, but it had been completely 
ignored and not used and of no benefit. And as soon as I found it and started using it, I've, I've tried done bacon in it, I've done chicken in it, I've done steaks in it, pork, you name it. It's marvelous. I should know, it's not an ad here this morning. So, but there's that sense that sometimes we have something that is valuable and it's, a, it's not a perfect illustration by any means. But it's an illustration that we can have something that we don't know that we have and we don't use it and it's of no benefit to us. And we fret over a frying pan and, and, and all sorts of stuff, trying to get it, things to work and take three, to, probably twice the time to cook, I must admit, for, the lap, for three years or so, twice the time to cook the meal. When it comes to our eternal state and who we are in Christ and our identity, and our assurance of salvation. We can spend, I've found many, many Christians get confused, unsure about their eternal state because of maybe some prevalent weakness or failure or sin in their lives, a sense of not being good enough stops them having that assurance of salvation. So I want to talk about the fact that we are, according to what the Bible says and according to what Jesus says and speaks into our lives, we have that assurance of salvation. I'm just going to get my wife just to share, as she's a counsellor, often she has Christians come to see her with issues problems and a lot of it is tied up with the fact that they don't actually know who they are in Christ. So I'll just get Jenny just to share briefly of her experience and how she uses um, the truth to help people. Thanks love. <laughs> Surprise, here I am. It's not unusual to be loved. No, that's Tom Jones. It's not unusual as a counsellor for me to, to have um, believers uh, presenting issues in their lives who uh, have a wrong sense of who they are, who have their worth and their value in other people's hands. And this is quite common because we're set up by accident growing up. We're made up. We have labels on us. We have people who uh, reflect to us, as you've probably heard my cracked mirror illustration, uh, who we are. And we lose sight when we're born again that God is our source, not our parents. We've come from God through our parents. But often the labels that we may uh, inherit, that are put on us, we put on ourselves, or even our, our sense of um, our birth order 
or, uh, you know, the names we were called. You know, this is my difficult child, this is my shy child. You know, this is, the, this is my beautiful child, this, this is my, this is the black sheep of the family. There can be those things. So the important thing for us as believers is to know as we read in Jeremiah, God referred to Jeremiah before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. However, Jeremiah was born into a hostile environment. As we know, he became depressed. And often depression, which is the highest presenting reason for anyone going for counseling today, is a result of a hostile environment and messages that we are receiving from others because our worth and value is in their hands. And we lose sight of the very exciting news that God is our source, not those things that informed us. So take your worth and value and your sense of belonging and your significance and your guilt and shame out of other people's hands and put them into God's, who's declared you not guilty permanently, not at fault, and innocent. Everybody say, I am innocent. I am innocent. Hallelujah. Great news. Thanks for dropping me in it, but it was just a pleasure. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> There's a verse that's just come to my mind that I just want to share with you. It's actually not up on the screen. It's uh, in Romans chapter 8, if you're taking notes, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep to the short slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For we're persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, or things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from his love. Amen? So we have that assurance, as Jenny has been sharing, the, the assurance that we are born of God. There was a, a time in history, in the 1700s, in the, in the United Kingdom, in Britain, where the, um, there was a social, a huge social problem. And it was known as the gin epidemic. There were gin houses in London almost on every street. There was a terrible, terrible addiction. And at that time, there were various things that were put into place to, that brought it to an end, but the major contributor to the end of that particular epidemic was a revival. Yeah. 
And the revival probably saved Britain from the same fate that France had had with their revolution. It was certainly heading that way. And it was led by a man called George Whitfield, and one that's perhaps a little better known, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, who wrote a lot of those hymns. And they were significant evangelists, preachers. Thousands upon thousands came to Christ under their preaching and under their ministry. And I haven't got time to go into the, the whole story because I find church history quite fascinating. But it tells, it gives us a pattern of what, of how things change and how a society could be changed from being wretched and broken and poor to one that became established and ordered and pretty well. And George Whitfield was the main instigator and he influenced John Wesley in the first instance. And they were great friends. And then something transpired between them which became a doctrinal issue. And George Whitfield begged John Wesley not to bring it up, not to write or preach a sermon on the subject, but he went his own way on it. And the difference was with what is known theologically as the, the Calvinist movement and the Arminian. One, the Calvinist movement believed in what Jenny's shared a little bit this morning, that we, we come to our parents through God, that we are predestined, that we are elect, that we are chosen. We sang about being chosen this morning. And that election, that salvation is sure and complete. It's something we can have confidence in because Jesus died for us and gave his life for us, an exchange, a divine exchange. Our election, our salvation is sure. But you may ask, well, how sure is it? I just want us to read just a few verses. Ephesians 3, 17, 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. It's a love that surpasses knowledge. Our knowledge, our human awareness separates us sometimes from God's love. We can think to ourselves, how many times have I sinned today? I really have got to cut that number down. I need to sin less. I need to think less about the things that I know are wrong. I need, you know, I've, I've lost my temper too many times when somebody's nicked my driving my parking spot. And that person that cut me up and I lost my temper with my kids this morning, or with my wife, or with my husband, or with my partner. I lost my, I lost my call at work. 
I'm really, really, really not liking the boss very much. You know? I really need to love him in Jesus' name. But I, but I just can't. <laughs> and we want to improve ourselves. And, and, and as it sort of wears, if we listen to that voice which says, you're a failure, you call yourself a Christian. You know, we have an enemy, right? And one, we have the enemy which is that sin parasite, which we all have and eats away at us from time to time and gets, sometimes gets the better of us. We sometimes fail. But there is that enemy of our soul which accuses us, the Bible says, day and night. Yet, what I read in Romans says, who can bring an accusation? Who can bring condemnation upon the elect? Those who are in Christ, that is you and me. Who can do that? What can separate us from Christ's love? How many times we sin? How many times we fail? Does that separate us? You see, human knowledge says yes, because in our experience with our families, with the people we work with, within our relationships, we know that failure, when we fail or they fail, it can affect that relationship, right? Sometimes we feel that person's let me down too many times. And that's where forgiveness comes in, but that's another subject. But God doesn't look at it like that because he sees what Jesus has done. And Jesus has given his life for yours. His sinless state for your sinful state. So the knowledge which says, the human knowledge which tries to persuade us that we're not good enough, that we can lose that salvation, that sooner or later we just fail too many times and God gives up on us, is not true. Who can grasp it? Who can understand God's love? So, John chapter 6, we read, All those the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will, who, will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but will raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. 
all those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Have you come to him? Yes. If you've come to him, he's never, ever going to drive you away. You have that assurance. You have that promise. It's solid. It's secure. It's eternal. I was talking about George and John Wesley. Uh, sorry, George Whitfield and John Wesley. And the fact that they had differing beliefs, yet they were incredibly effective. And one of the beauties of the Christian church is that you can have differences and yet still be mightily used by God. And as I've said, there was George, who was a Calvinist to his core, believed in election, believed in predestination, believed in the assurance of salvation for the believer, the chosen. And there was John, who believed, yes, to a part, but also he also believed he was an Arminianist, which means you could actually lose that salvation. It, would be, it could be possible, it could be difficult, but it could be possible to lose it. So they had these differing opinions. But the interesting thing was they both got mightily used of God. It was actually, they went from preaching in churches and the churches started turning their back on them because it was totally what they were proclaiming was against the, the churchianity of the day, which was very humanistic. And George persuaded John Wesley to be a preacher out in the field. So they go out to the communities and they sometimes preach to as many as 20,000 20, men and women out there in the fields. And there was a mighty revival under both of them and also in America. And there came a time, because of the dispute between the two of them, that they really got odd, odds with each other. But the beautiful thing is that George had asked John to take his funeral. And when George died, and John Wesley was to take the funeral, one of John's followers came to him and said, do you think we will see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? And John replied, I fear not, because he will be so close to the throne that we will be blinded by the glare. <laughs> Which is, he was a great orator. But the truth of it was that even though they have differences, the love of Christ persuaded them both to give their lives for Christ and to pay the price that was involved. In his book, Eternal Security, Charles Stanley, who's a well-known 
American pastor, and some of you may have watched his TV program over the years. He subscribed to the idea that one could lose their salvation until he really got down and looked at it and he changed his mind. A little bit like the Foreman grill, if you like. <laughs> that lean, mean machine that I discovered. He'd been brought up on the teaching that, yes, you were saved, but you needed to add to that. There needed to be, you needed to work out your salvation. You needed to do good works. And we all know that that comes if you like, naturally, we have commands to do certain good works. And a lot of people believe Christianity is a matter of doing good works. But that is not the case, because it is by grace we have been saved, not works, lest any man should boast. We can't be saved by anything but God's grace. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we are saved for good works, Ephesians 2 tells us. And Charles Stanley puts forward six doctrines or Christian characteristics that are at stake when the doctrine of eternal security is rejected. And I'm just going to bring those up on the screen now. Number one, assurance of salvation is at stake because the individual who believes he is not eternally secure can never be completely sure that he is saved throughout his entire life. The assurance of salvation is at stake. Number two, forgiveness is at stake because the one who rejects eternal security believes, whether he realizes it or not, that Jesus Christ only died for the sins he committed prior to his salvation. Therefore, <coughs> therefore, Christ did not die for all his sins. There is a common belief amongst Christians that, yes, when we're saved, we repent and we get our sins forgiven. But if we sin after we're saved, we need to make sure that we repent of those sins. Now, I'm not putting down the idea that we shouldn't repent. I think it's a good thing just to, you know, take a bit of a check on our behavior and, and say sorry. But the reality is that at the cross, we're forgiven past, present, and future sins. Paul says, forgive others as you have been forgiven, past tense. It's over with. 
Your sins are done for. What's the count of your sins today? Zero. Because Jesus has taken care of each one. We've got this sort of little story that there's a book up in heaven with all the things we've done wrong listed. The only book up in heaven is what Jesus has done for you and I. Complete and absolute. So forgiveness is at stake. Number three, the doctrine of salvation by faith alone is at stake because the one who rejects eternal security believes that his own actions can cause him to lose his salvation and then receive salvation again at a later time. Thus, salvation is accomplished by faith plus works since his salvation he believes, is maintained by works. It's quite subtle. And our human state thinks, yeah, how many people have you met that you've talked about Jesus and they've said, well, I'm just not good enough. I just couldn't do it. Because they're aware of them, themselves. They're aware of who they are. They're aware of the lifestyle that they live and they think, I couldn't change. But it's Jesus that changes our hearts. We don't have to do it. Amen? We don't have to do it. He does it. We just need to say, I believe and I trust. It's that easy. We make it so jolly difficult sometimes. Do you know what I'm saying? We do, we make it really hard for ourselves and others. When in fact it's a work of the Holy Spirit within us. Being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. Living that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not up to us. We say, well, what do you do? Do you just sit back and let it happen? Is it a passive thing? Of course not. There is a seeking and there is a finding. But so often, like my George Foreman grill, we've got it, but it's hidden away and neglected. We just need to bring it out. We just need to bring this out more, mate. See what it says. What's the answer? When we've got a problem, when we've got a difficulty, what is the answer? Seek help from his word, from what he's saying to your heart. Talk to others. Find the answer. It's that simple. Sometimes it can be to change, you know. Like I say, we've just moved house. It's a huge change. Change can be difficult. But with God's grace... It can be made a whole lot easier if we just relax in him. Say, Lord, you do this. I'm, not, I'm no good at it. You can do it. Take over. Number four, Christ's unconditional love is at stake. The rejection of eternal security undermines the love of Christ. 
<coughs> excuse me, Christ's love is only conditional <coughs> upon the works of the individual. That's when you believe, when you're not secure. You're looking to yourself. You're not looking to Christ. Christ's love is only conditional upon the works of the individual. It's like, well, Jesus has done this. I've been born again. I've been saved. Now I've got to do it. I've got to add to it. When we're complete in him that it is Christ at work in you, Christ at work in you, in your heart. He gives you a new heart and he's working it out. Paul talks about the renewing of our mind and that's something where we just submit to him. Submit to the heart that Jesus has given you. Help one another with that. Number five, the work of evangelism is at stake when one rejects eternal security of the believer because the one sharing the gospel cannot be assured that he is always saved himself. So having that confidence of our security in Christ gives us the confidence to share with others. Knowing that what we have is eternal. We carry eternity in our hearts. Jesus in you, the hope of glory. We carry that in our hearts to share with others. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, a clear focus on God is at stake. For the person who believes he can lose his salvation must focus more upon himself and his own actions in order to secure his salvation rather than focusing his attention upon God as the author and the finisher of his faith. Salvation comes from Christ alone. He is our rock. He is the one on which we build our faith. He is the one that we trust to change us. To submit to his power working in our lives to change us and to renew us. It's not something we... We need to get away from the fact that we have got to do so much to please God. He is pleased with you. He loves you just as you are. Jesus, let's get this a moment, Jesus is perfect within you. You say, well, I'm not perfect. Really? <laughs> no. No, I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. My wife knows I'm not perfect. Yeah. Perfect perfect sort of rhymes. But Jesus is. And he 
has come to live within you by his spirit. So why not take advantage of that? Why not say, Lord, you say you're going to work out your salvation within me. I just want to trust you. Trust you to do your work. Relax in you. Rest in all you've done. Rest in the fact that I'm going to be with you in heaven. Rest in your promises that I am going to rule and reign with Christ in eternity. What does that look like? I'm not sure. I think this life's a bit like primary school. Just a sort of a, just learning a little, being prepared for eternity, for what he's got in store. I don't think we're going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp and singing. You'll be certainly hoping that I won't be sitting on a cloud singing, playing a harp with my voice. But that sense, get a new voice, yeah, yeah, get a redeemed voice, amen. So it's that sense that we have a future, there is a grand, grand future in his kingdom. And we are just the beginning, we are just tasting, we're getting a taste the primary school taste, if you like, the preparation for eternity. And how we respond to His Spirit within us, how we work that out. It says here that we're, we're the, He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Our focus more upon ourselves. We're trying to do that all ourselves. If we're trying to add to the, what He has done, we think we have to earn it when it is in fact a free gift. We just need to receive it. Have you received the free gift of eternal life in Jesus? Have you stopped working for it? Are you relaxing in His love? letting him flow through you to be a vessel for his honour. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we had done anything, Before any good works, before going to church, before giving of our time and giving of our money, Christ died for you. For you. He did it all. This is the love of God. This is the promise, the gift of eternal salvation. The emphasis is on eternal. He is our salvation. And He is given you the gift of His life. You know, Jesus came full of grace and truth. Grace 
is a manifestation of the Greek word agape love, which is selfless love, seeking the highest good for another. But it's the gift of his love for you to work through you. In Corinthians 13, a well-known love chapter which you often hear read at weddings, it tells us that love, agape, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love never fails. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And God is love. One of the common threads that has come through John's sermons on people's after-death experience is the, the incredible presence of love that has never been felt before, never experienced before. That love is God's love. That's agape love. That's the love God has for you and for me, which accepts us just as we are, just as you are. God accepts you. God loves you. And he wants to give that perfect love to you as a gift. All you need to do is receive it. It cannot fail. His love is perfect and it is complete. You know, sometimes our failures and our sins seem to demand some price, some cost. And sure, maybe in the natural we have experienced consequences of our errors and mistakes and sin. But when the enemy comes with a voice which says, you've got to pay a price for what you've done, you've got to pay penance, that penance, that price has been paid by Christ. Once and for all, he has died for your sins even before you were born. And you've been predestined into that, elected into that, chosen to be his child. And he wants you to look up. To look up to him. To look perhaps within the heart that Jesus has now given you and receive that love. Amen? I just ask the musicians to come now. You know, Peter cursed his saviour on the very day, at the very hour that his saviour gave himself for him. Yet Jesus had prophesied to Peter, the Apostle Peter, 
and said to him, you will fail, but when you're restored, strengthen your brethren. He was to strengthen them on the basis of the fact that he had failed. It was in the purposes of God that Peter denied Christ. You know, when David fell to lust and murder the King David in the Old Testament, and he came back and was restored and, and prayed and repented, he penned words that we read today and wrote psalms that are just world famous and he said create in me a clean heart O God and restore unto me a contrite spirit he was aware that only God could change his heart only God could change who he was that it was a miracle of grace it was a miracle of God's love let's just pray Father I thank you for everyone here I thank you for each one that you have chosen to be here this morning maybe those that are, are looking and seeking and those that have found and those that are feeling insecure in you I just pray that the security of the fact that they are chosen that it, it isn't a coincidence that they're here today but you have chosen them from the foundation of the world Father I just pray that that insight and there would be a warming in their heart a sense that you're doing a work even now in them just with every head bowed I just want to give an invitation would you receive Jesus this morning if you haven't just with every head bowed is there anyone here that would like to receive Jesus into their heart for the first time have a sense that uh, that there is a truth that is so profound it can be life changing and it is that our eternal status and knowing it determines our emotional state And as we focus on our eternal status, not at fault, not to blame, not guilty, shame off me, I am innocent, 
It will determine my emotional state. I can live in that state of not guilty permanently. Would you like to live permanently innocent? Who would like to live from that state? That's what I live from. Not that I don't make mistakes, but I live from not guilty. Innocent, Christ's innocence availing for me. Yes, clean up the mess by all means, but our status in Christ determines our emotional state. And when we know, we can never lose it. We become centered and free. And that's called the abundant life. It's an amazing place to live in, and it's available to us all. Just simply believe and receive. Jenny, that's just awesome. Such key stuff to get our heads around. So thank you. Would you stand with us as, as we just finish with a song? It's just another opportunity to speak, to declare truth, and to just give ourselves to Him.